this is a news laundry podcast and you're listening to sessions from the media rumble 2018 good afternoon i don't know if the guys at uh, news laundry madhu and abhinandan and the rest of them slotted this uh, by design but the fact is the most sleepy session the one after lunch is the most interesting uh, it's the one about fake news uh, because whether you're in the mainstream media whether you're on the far right far left this is a problem this is a challenge that faces everybody uh mainstream off center digital print tv everybody faces the challenge of fake news and the industry per se hasn't quite come up with a comprehensive solution yet to how to deal with this problem but hopefully they will uh in the in the foreseeable future so thanks to news laundry for slotting us the session after lunch when everybody's at their sleepy best but hopefully this will be an interesting session uh so i'm going to start with our panelists i'm going to start with govindraj etiraj he's a television and print journalist he's the founder of india spend and boom boomlive.in he also seasonally anchors on indian news television he's most recently done uh, policy watch which was on rajasabha tv previously he was the founder editor in chief of bloomberg tv india He spent the first decade of his journalism in print working with the Economic Times uh, before joining CNBC TV 18 in its early growth phase. He's a fellow at the Aspen Institute. He's also a winner of the BMW Foundation Responsible Leadership Awards for 2014. So Govindraj Etiraj. We have Anum Van Wink who was appointed as the editor of Africa Check in uh, October of 2015 after she was deputy editor since July of 2014. Previously she's edited an award-winning national supplement in the Afrikaans paper Beel, Der Burger and Voxpal. She's also worked as a newspaper reporter, magazine writer, a television producer. In 2016 she completed a master's degree in media management from the Stellenbosch University with a thesis titled Fact-checking in the Global South: Facts about Non-Profit Journalism Funding Models. She also got the best student award for that. So Anum Van Wink Welcome to the Media Rumble. Aaron Sharapman is the executive director of Politifact. That's the largest fact-checking organization in the United States. Aaron leads the growth and development of Politifact. He manages its outreach, its news partnerships. He also oversees new part initiatives and product development. He's been with Politifact since 2010. Most recently, he's been the editor of Pundit Fact. which is a website which is dedicated to the claims made by pundits and columnists and bloggers and hosts uh, as well as guests of talk shows Aaron was a 2016-17 Reynolds fellow at the University of Missouri he's also taught a class on political fact checking at the Missouri School of Journalism at the University of Missouri Aaron welcome to the media rumble Ishtia Amjad is the vice president for public affairs and communications at Coca-Cola India and Southwest Asia He spearheads the practice and his charter includes government relations, policy advocacy, communications and sustainability. As one of India's leading practitioners in public and corporate affairs, Ishtiak is passionate about social issues. He's a strong advocate for deploying business solutions to address societal challenges. Welcome to the Media Rumble. And finally, Tushar Barot, yeah, he's worked at the BBC News for the last 17 years across radio, television and online. He's led the UGC and social media verification hub for the BBC in the last five years, which has led to digital development projects across the BBC's global language news markets. 
Tushar has been based in Delhi for the last year or so uh, to launch the BBC's news digital services in Indian languages. Tushar, welcome to the Media Rumble. I'll start with Govind because he's in the professional business of fact-checking all of us who are in the mainstream and non-mainstream media. So Govind, I think it was Jonathan Swift who said, and this was back in the 17th century, that falsehood flies and then the truth comes limping after. I think it's more true today in the 21st century when you can have a thousand retweets, uh, you can have WhatsApp messages based on patently false and fake rumors that go viral, which give uh, heft to a patent lie, but eventually it becomes the truth. The, the topic for today, this afternoon's session is very simple. Who's winning the battle against false news? Is false news winning the battle against false news? Uh, thanks, uh, Zaka. I think uh, if if we were to if we were to place ourselves at this point of time, uh, I would I would perhaps admit that false news is winning because for the uh, only for the reason that our fight back has only begun now. And there are two or three kinds of fight back. The, the one fight back is how do you improve the education and awareness levels of people who consume media and social media. The second is are there people like us who are dedicatedly checking, fact-checking, busting, calling out someone who either creates or distributes or endorses fake news? The third, I think, is a little more fundamental and goes back to education and awareness, and that's digital literacy. And that's a little different from literacy, because if you look at what's been happening in India, more than 30 people have died because of rumors that have been circulated on WhatsApp and have led to people mostly lynching people on streets or villages or whatever. They, the reason they have received those messages is because they're literate. So you can't, you know, the, the, the early reaction was people are Ill illiterate, they don't know what they're doing. No, they're literate. I think the, the, the challenge is the digital literacy, where you realize that or you accept that what you're reading on the internet or on WhatsApp or some social media platform may not be the truth and you need to fundamentally question the source, the origin and the potential creator of that piece of information or disinformation. So, so how do you do that? Uh, this is obviously mass media, it's going to tens of thousands, if not millions of people. How do you ensure that you check the veracity of that news before it becomes viral, before it becomes viral to the point that it's beginning to claim lives? You can do it in some cases, as we all are, uh, in, uh, whether I'm doing it in India or in Af through Africa Check, which operates in many countries, or PolitiFact in the US. But you, we have to acknowledge that the nature of fake news is uh, it, it's, it's extremely high dispersion material and it's also very hyper local if you look at the cases and, and i'm only quoting the ex extreme ones because the extreme ones are typically what make us aware of the situation if you look at what happened in let's say karnataka when these four, five friends got into a car drove into a village they were stopped people thought that they were child kidnappers based on fake whatsapp rumors backed with videos which in turn were edited and sliced and distributed earlier so the, the, those friends were, uh, were, were trying to actually escape from that village, but people, villagers there took their, took their photographs, sent WhatsApp messages to the next village where, they were where the villagers there put a log on the road, pulled them out of the car, you know all of this, and beat them up, and one of them, an ex Accenture engineer, died. Right? So that's a very hyper-local event. There's nothing or no technology that I know of today that can even anticipate or stop something like that because it's really circulating between 20 or 30 people. Mm -hmm. so, so therefore it comes back to what we spoke about earlier, uh, education, awareness, and there is of course law enforcement which is a slightly different subject which, which we can talk about later. And I'm just wondering, one of the perennial arguments and justifications, if I can use that phrase, uh, by the government 
especially here in India, is look, this, this is about social media, WhatsApp, Twitter, Facebook, many of their servers are based out, outside of India. There's nothing we can do to, to stop the spread of fake news because you know, we really don't have much control over these folks. I'm just curious, are there examples or are there situations we can draw from in Africa where the, the spread of fake news is checked either by those social media platforms or by governments through intervention? Sorry, in the battle for my lungs, the Delhi Air is working, so I'll try to be um, <laughs> um, comprehensible. Um, I th it's, it's such a complex problem to solve, and especially with WhatsApp, as you know, it's an encrypted platform, so what circulates there is, is we only become aware of it once it becomes a problem. So um, for Africa Check, we've just, um, as, as an attempt at um, solving this, we have our own WhatsApp line and we encourage people to send rumors or things that they want fact-checked to us um, as a way of surfacing um, hoaxes. Um, I think in Africa and, and in many places, uh, what is more a danger is, is over-regulation or over-legislation. Um, these are uh, countries, some countries like Tanzania, where uh, there are autocratic tendencies or they are, um, sure. you know, it's being exploited. So we must also not, in attempting to solve this global issue, um, resolve to um, hard-handed measures. Um, I'm, I'm very concerned about that. And okay. So I just want to be clear so that our viewers here and, and everybody else who is, who's there in the, in the audience is sure about this. If, if there are viewers or listeners or readers who want a particular piece of information, a particular piece of news fact-checked, they can send it to you, they can send it to Africa Check, and you guys will do the needful? We um, place a high premium on suggestions. It helps with our impartiality, our non-partisanship, because um, people accuse us of selection bias, like why do you, why do you choose that? So if many people suggest that it, it help, helps guards against that. Um, but obviously we're a small team, we can't fact check everything, so, so other considerations um, play a factor that. But especially in the case of WhatsApp, um, we won't know about those rumors unless somebody um, sends it to us. All right, thank you. Aaron, in, in the United States, you guys have taken it to a whole new different level where you know, we're talking about government interference, intervention uh, in, in your elections. You know, it, it's got to that point. How, how do you, as, as one of the heads of the largest political fact-checking organization in the US, how do you guard against this? Because you're basically fighting intelligence agencies, you're fighting foreign governments who may or may not have intervened in a free democratic exercise. Well, first, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, as is the America way, American way, we have to do everything the best, right? So like, <laughs> we have to make it the hardest and the worst on us. Um, a couple thoughts here. The first thing I would say is, uh, we're in a much better spot today than we were in the fall of 2016. Um, you know, a lot of people don't like the term fake news. They try not to use it. Uh, but everyone now knows what it is. They know that we know that a problem exists. Uh, and now we're spending a lot of time, energy, resources, money trying to kind of combat it. Um, and so I think that's really actually a really good thing now. And so across the world, we're not going to be tricked. The back, the, the problem here now has become um, we now know that there's things on the internet we can't trust. 
Um, and that gives uh, too many people the ability to say, well, I can't trust anything, or I don't know what to trust. Uh, and, and from my perspective in the United States, uh, the President of the United States uh, is, is creating um, a situation that is uh, as difficult as kind of the fake news problem that we see, because um, he's fomenting this distrust in the media. Uh, we counted, in 2017, he used the term fake news at least 400 times. Um, and we documented every case. Uh, and in every case, what we found was none of it was what we would, on this panel would describe as fake news, uh, deliberately false misinformation, propaganda, or hoaxes. What it was was stories he didn't agree with or stories that were well-intentioned, well-reported, but inaccurate. And so if the New York Times makes a mistake, they correct the record, they post a correction. Um, so we have, that's, that's kind of the framing of where we're at. Um, and then uh, as we talk about the solutions here, we have to think about this in a couple different ways. Like Govin's uh, example, the thing that stuck out to me there is uh, the, the WhatsApp was the medium in which the misinformation was transmitted. I think if WhatsApp didn't exist, the misinformation would have been transmitted. Um, so we have two inch, so we have to fight against the mediums, um, how, how it's being transmitted, and we have to also work on uh, kind of the misinformation itself. When PolitiFact started in 2007, um, we didn't have hoaxes online spreading virally on Facebook. What we had was chain emails, right? So these were emails in all capital letters that um, were spread, forwarded uh, to a lot of people. Uh, again, this is the problem isn't new, the medium is new. We have to think about the medium. Um, when it comes to kind of government uh, intervention or regulation, I'll say this from my perspective. I do not want the President of the United States, this one or anyone, determining which sources of news are good and which sources of news are bad. Um, and so I guess I'm more in line with what Facebook said earlier, which is um, we have to think of kind of creative crowd ways to kind of look for trust indicators. But I'm, I'm uh, uh, Govin started by saying fake news is winning. I, my argument would be a little different than saying I think I'm actually optimistic because of all the eyeballs that are now on this issue. Um, uh, and my actual fear is overreaction uh, to the point that uh, we're creating new problems rather than addressing the, the, the ones we started with. Can, can I just take you back? So there were 400 instances where the President of the United States, arguably the most powerful man in the world, refer or used the phrase fake news. Do you guys know how many of those 400 instances was actually on the back of a patently wrong story with or without political you know, malice or prejudice? Yeah, uh, patently wrong, probably zero, but... Um, uh, Inaccurate, meaning like had to have correction. We're talking like five, seven times. Um, I mean, essentially, it's become clear, and actually, there's been good reporting to actually look at the times he's used the term fake news um, to describe a story based on unnamed sources that actually later came out on the record to be correct. Okay. Um, so, uh, and by the way, I would add um, that uh, this is language that's been picked up across the world, right? And so, uh, politicians aren't dummies. They understand that this kind of, this messaging, make the press the enemy of the people, another phrase he's used often, it, it resonates with a lot of folks. And so you're seeing that being spread uh, in the language of leaders across the world, which again, all it does is create more distrust in the press. And that's a whole separate issue from <laughs> fake news, no. but also like a really important one. No, uh, it's fascinating to me, and I'll get to shower into this. 
There are just five or seven instances where Aaron's organization, whose you know, very reason for existence is to fact check, have found out of 400 where the President of the United States, the most powerful man in the world, has used the phrase fake news. So obviously he's using this to describe stories which he's uncomfortable with, which you know, expose his government. How do, how do we as journalists, as, as people working in media organizations, you know, deal with that sort of thing, where, where you're all branded as, you know, in this country, you're branded anti-national. In Aaron's country, you're just peddled as CNN equals fake news. I think one of the things I've noticed, certainly within the BBC over the last two years, there's been a real sort of live internal debate happening about what is our purpose as a global news organization in this space. What should we be doing and what should we not be doing? Two, three years ago, I think the view very much would have been it's not our job to fact check. Um, and what we would do, we had lots of great sort of internal processes um, to make sure we didn't broadcast fake content. So when I used to run the BBC's UGC and social media hub, a lot of our job was actually preventing news programs from broadcasting stuff that was not accurate or not as we thought it was. But we never got to the point where we thought, okay, well, the rest of the newsroom knows our advice, but we've not gone out to the rest of the public and told them, actually, we're not broadcasting this because we don't have any confidence in it. And I think now we're much more at the point where we want to be much more transparent about that internal editorial conversation that's happening because we realize that actually, rather than confusing the audience, I think it makes them feel that they can trust us even more because they can see that we're going through a process of explaining to them, this is what we know so far, this is what we don't know, this is where we think there are problems. Um, and that's generally has been a internal editorial process for decades that every newsroom has had. But I think we're still getting into that process of explaining that to our audiences in a meaningful way. And I don't think we've quite hit, hit the right balance yet. L let me just distill that and give you a live example of, of Brexit, right? Yeah. You have this large constituency of people uh, who may have been misinformed that this is a good thing for Britain. You also have powerful people, including those in government, prime minister, ministers, who believe that this is a good thing. How do you push back against that with, with, with facts when you're all being branded as fake news people? Yeah, and I mean, the BBC has come under quite a lot of criticism in the way we did the Brexit reporting. Um, and so the, the view that we took at the time was that we would treat it like a uh, election campaign. And so we fell under the normal broadcasting restrictions and rules that we have. So we would make sure that each side would have equal uh, time on air um, and we would challenge each side equally. But the problem was that arguably one side had a lot more facts on its side compared to the other side. But I think the audience lost that ability to judge that because organizations like the BBC and other broadcasters who were under the same restrictions were having to give equal airtime. And so even if we were challenging one side equally to the other side, the fact that one side had more facts was lost to the audience. Uh, and that's something that you know, we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we do this in a more sophisticated way whilst retaining our neutrality, our independence, impartiality, but still calling out people when they're wrong without being you know, labeled as being pro one way or the other, which you know, is always a challenge. This is fascinating because normally in the course of journalism, you're taught to believe that, you know, it's not your job to judge. You give, you know, side A their airtime and you give side B their airtime and it's up to the viewer to decide, you know, which side he wants to, to be on. Unfortunately, in the era of fake news, 
one side is just patently wrong. And it may or may not be the job of media organizations to, to point that out explicitly that, yes, these guys are just peddling falsehoods, while the other guys are peddling what seems to be reasonably closer to the truth. But let me get Ishtiak into this conversation, because he's coming into Sir, this can place. Can I come in very quickly? Because I think uh, I, I just want to put perspective into this. At least in India, 95 to 98% of what we look at in, in the context of misinformation, falsehoods, disinformation, has nothing to do with mainstream media. So we are not fact-checking mainstream media. We are, we are checking stuff that's really subterranean. It's, it's, it's flowing through WhatsApp, uh, independent websites whose origin you don't know, Facebook itself and other social media platforms. So the problem is a little different. So I, I know that sometimes uh, mainstream media, uh, not in this case, but mainstream media can get a little defensive about it because of the mistakes they make, the genuine mistakes they make, which they correct. And that's the whole idea that you have a brand there which is responsive and responsible and therefore corrects that has something that has to be corrected. You can call it fake news, but I guess we all know that it's not really fake news, it's an error. But what we're dealing with, the real problem, whether it's the people, uh, someone getting killed in Karnataka or, uh, uh, or disinformation which is being spread, spread to create communal tension, it's nothing to do with mainstream media. Well, I think that's again another fascinating point that Govind brings because, you know, stories and sometimes fake stories just gather a life of their own and Ishtiak comes into a comes into this debate from a completely different point of view from a completely different perspective so I'm just curious you know the fake news sort of gathers a life of its own and especially for you someone who heads uh, brand management and the perception of one of the most popular brands in the country all it takes is for your rival to spend a few hundred few thousand bucks on these anonymous, random internet trolls to sort of spread fake stuff against your brand. It, it has nothing to do with mainstream media. It has nothing to do with, you know, established news outlets. How do you, as, as, as somebody who's in charge of, you know, the brand perception of your brand, how do you battle something like this? Because the internet, you know, gives you the, the luxury and the freedom of anonymity. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, uh, I feel a little like an odd man out sitting here because uh, I have a unique distinction of double whammy of uh, being victim of the false or the fake news. Uh, I come from a community and I represent a brand both has been at the recip recipient of a lot of fake news and a lot of false news. Uh, let me just take a step back and, and try and understand why does this happen? Uh, I represent a consumer company and we really place a lot of premium on the behavior of the consumer. It's the consumption that creates the supply and demand. And I think if you really look at the evolution of fake, fake or false news, it's very recent. I mean, it has really reached a, a critical mass in the last about four, five years in, in, in a real sense. And was it, what is it catering to? forget about the political positions and all of that. It is essentially catering to the, I wouldn't even call it an unconscious bias, it's probably the conscious bias inside us. When you look at a piece of news, whether it has come through a forwards on a WhatsApp or whatever, depending on who you are, you will react to the, that news accordingly. Uh, if it is catering to your bias, you react very differently. And the usual you know, response that anybody who forwards all these news, I just forwarded. You forwarded because you believed in it, right? You forwarded because you subscribed to that idea. So this, you know, I mean, 
ultimately and, and especially for a brand like us, what typically happens? So there are a couple of things. One, there's a complete false or fake news which is by design. As Zaka, you were, you were talking about, it is, it is decided that I am going to damage this brand or this particular whatever, you know, institution, faith, community, whatever, country or a political system. And then you put it with a purpose. Now that's one piece. The second piece is that you just distort a fact. And, and if you look at Coca-Cola, if you go on the videos of YouTube or Google toilet cleaner, uh, uh, there, was, there, there was this lovely video we did in, in the US uh, uh, where we said all of us have to come together to fight obesity. It takes all of us to fight that. It was a lovely, almost impeccable voiceover done over that which said that Coca-Cola admits that we are responsible and solely responsible for, for obesity and therefore please don't drink Coca-Cola. There were people who sent me with congratulatory notes saying what a bold statement you guys are doing. But that's an, that's an amazing intelligence and innovation to do fake news. Now, the, you know, I mean, as, as, a, as brand representative, as a custodian of brand, it's, it's really a hard task for us where to intervene and how to really solve it. So what we did in this case where there was a voiceover, we put both these videos together, the original and the voiceover. And I said, we have a big network of Coca-Cola. Why not try and use that and spread it? It took me a lifetime. It did not move the way the fake news moves, unfortunately. So the propensity of consumption of fake news is so high that it kind of, you know, I mean, it really moves faster. But I think it's, it's over time that, you know, I mean, uh, we have to create that kind of a capacity. And thankfully, uh, slowly and gradually, the consumer of news are asking this, these questions. Is it real? Is it for real? Is this news really uh, true or authentic? I think that's where we will have to focus here. So, so you basically have no choice other than to just be in it for the long haul. Okay, fair enough. Can I, can I add one yeah. thing? This is, um, it's really interesting because, uh, so we're partnering with Facebook uh, to do fact checking on their platform to try to stop the spread of misinformation. And one of the tactics by the, these fake news guys right now is to really go after brands. And, and the way they're doing it is, um, it's Delta Airlines is, is celebrating its 65th birthday, fill out this survey to get two free tickets. Um, and we're seeing all kinds of examples of this. Really, it's a way to uh, get some advertising money, maybe give them your personal information. Please don't. Um, Chipotle, just ha this actually just happened at Chipotle, and it said, it's National Avocado Day. There's a day for everything. Um, <laughs> and so Chipotle is giving away free avocado, guacamole. And this, this was fake, but it spread virally on, the, uh, on Facebook. Uh, and so what happened is Chipotle actually, one, they said, no, this is fake, but come to Chipotle on August whatever and you can get free guacamole. So like, they had to make a decision to kind of how to interact. And in this case, it was, we're going to give away free guacamole. We've had other brands who we said, hey, we're fact-checking this uh, piece of content. It's false. And they've literally come back to, to us and said, please don't fact check it. Because they don't want more information, more attention drawn to it. They're just like, just let it ignore it. And so that's another interesting reaction that some, some brands are taking, which is saying like, just like, let's pretend it didn't happen because that might be a better decision for them. I, I think again, that's a fascinating conversation. I mean, the more you try to sort of give attention to a particular story, fake news as it may be, it might actually end up, you know, uh, being counter 
counterintuitive and, and counterpurposeful. So what I'm going to do is, um, you know, the guys at News Laundry said 15 minutes audience questions. I'm going to sort of expand this a bit because really, I mean, people in mainstream media or non-mainstream media are not really at the front lines of this battle. The people who are really at the front lines of this battle are you folks in the audience. So I'm going to take a little extra leeway and open this up to about 25 We've got about 25 minutes of audience questions. So my request to everybody who wants to ask a question is, A, please identify yourself. B, identify the organization that you belong to. Uh, and C, let's just keep it to a question, right? Not, not, not just you know, your opinion. We have, we have enough of that. So, so be very pointed, be very specific, and address the person, uh, whoever you want to ask your question to. So let's start with the lady there in the, in the blue jacket. First of all, thank you for the, uh, for the extremely insightful uh, conversation here. Uh, I'm Ankita. Um, and uh, my question is slightly long, and my deepest apologies for that already. Um, so I don't know if you know this, but recently um, PepsiCo got an interim order um, from the Delhi High Court um, in order for uh, posts against uh, kurkuri, which is a popular snack in India, uh, to be taken down. Because most of these posts allege it. That, that particular snack has plastic. Now, my question here is, uh, you know, a larger question about the concept of intermediate liability, which, you know, you all touched upon, and further goes back to, you know, the fundamental question, which is, what exactly is news? You know, we're talking about misinformation and disinformation. So, um, it is elemental to diagnose the problem. And what I want to understand is that in such situations, what is news? Is it, is it about people? Is it about politics? Is it, does it include opinions or is it just facts? All right. Thank you. Thank you very much for your question. I, I, I presume that it, it was for HDF. You, you want to answer that question? Yeah, I can. Uh, you know, as, as I said, that we are, we are at the receiving end of this, all these uh, falsehood that, that gets, uh, or the canard that gets spread. Now, there are different reactions to situations like this. Uh, Internally, we debate, we discuss, and we often have this, you know what I mean, like uh, Aaron was uh, talking about, you have to decide what is the lifespan of that fake news or whatever, and, and what is it doing to your brand? Because at the end of the day, in today's world, no matter what we do, it is impossible to eradicate the false news. There are news, and there are also patterns, you know what I mean? There are certain news which I can almost predict you to you that this will happen just before the summer because they know that in summer the soft drink sales are going to go up or whatever. So there are these Ebola virus in Maza, uh, somebody putting uh, AIDS infected blood in Fanta and whatnot. So, these so, so what do you do? You're on the other side. You, you, are, you are a representative of, of a brand and then there's, there's this competitive band, uh, brand who, on, on whom there is fake news. Do you just sit back and say, okay, I mean, good for us? No, I mean, uh, you know, at least the good thing is that the old war of Coke and Pepsi is, you know, watered down significantly because we realize that they are, we both are on the same side of the fence more often than we are actually competing with each other. So we do compete in the marketplace, but issues like this, if it means that as an industry you need to collaborate, there's no harm in that. All right. We have associations where we collaborate. Okay, fair enough. Uh, uh, gentleman here. Hi, um, my name is Venkatesh and I'm uh, building a coalition against disinformation in India. And that, why a coalition? Because we recognize that this is a multi-pronged problem and it requires solutions from publishers, platforms, um, you know, corporates, 
uh, academic uh, academicians people my question is to you aaron is there we understand that this supply side um, there's a supply side problem and there's a demand side problem supply side is there's a lot of fake news that's being proliferated and it can be stopped by fact checks on the demand side as govind was saying there's a lot of emphasis on digital literacy and uh, media literacy but digital literacy and media literacy take it takes time it, it doesn't happen like a fact check it, it it requires people to change their minds is there any movement internationally for not fact checks but maybe emotion checks or you know along alongside digital literacy um, sort of uh, initiatives that that are fast and speedy i think it's a great question i mean people want to believe the truth that they want to believe in how do you convince them that everything that they believe is not necessarily right so i would start with a really fundamental uh uh a point of view here which is it is not our job to change pe people's mind if uh if your job as a journalist or a fact checker is to change people's mind you're going to drive yourself crazy and you'll give up within a week um my job is to try to put out the best uh most objective information to let you decide what you want to decide. And so I I tell this story all the time. I think about it this way. Um we all have our facts and we all have our beliefs, right? Um and what we need to do is try to think of a way that we can all get around the same facts. Whatever the topic is, healthcare, immigration policy, um roads, environment, and then believe whatever you want, right? The the problem we're in today is we start with our beliefs. Here's what I believe. And thanks to the internet, you can find a fact that will make you feel like the smartest, most validated person on the planet. Um and sometimes those facts may be right, but they're just part of the story. Sometimes those facts may be fabricated. Um my what I'm what I kind of preach is what as journalists so for fact checkers we can't solve it there's way you're there's way too much misinformation there's not enough of us our job isn't um uh we're not going to be pay you know it's not it's not big companies aren't going to invest thousands of dollars millions of dollars in fact checking so what i think we need to do is tell journalists we really need to figure out how to distinguish ourselves from the bad guys um what are the things we can do that if you if anyone saw the two stories side by side you'd be like oh yeah like that's that one's real that one's not i mean what you were saying about the idea of saying here's what we know here's what we don't know a really like simple concept here's how we reported this story um at politifact we list every source we use in every story we write it's a bibliography not many news organizations did that but do that but guess who i know who doesn't do that people who write fake news they're not going to take the time to do all that stuff so on uh, in the short term i think as journalists we can do more to say we're the real guys you can trust us and then the other thing i would say is if you look at the the hoaxes the misinformation they just stole their ideas from us as journalists when we were in the clickbait get the page views get the money have the video breaking news capital letters that's just what we did and now we're like how dare you <laughs> right that's what it, that's what's happened Um so like we need to just step it up and say people want quality information and make it clear to them that what quality quality information looks like. All the other things you're talking about need to happen, but you're right. Like we need to spend a lot of money teaching high school, middle school students, but that's a 20-year project. That's not a 6-month fix. 
You, you are right. If I can just add, um, fact-checking is, is not the cure, and we don't pretend. It's, it's just a piece of the puzzle, and a lot of things have to come together, and they would be short-term, medium-term, and long-term initiatives. So, for example, with Africa Check, we do training at newsrooms, and we give out awards, um, and we also train high school students. So that's kind of the long-term um, thinking. Um, but in the end, I think we're all dealing with the symptoms and the underlying cause, as you say, is, is the emotion. People want to believe certain things. And I'm not sure, and I, I still need to think about that, of how you, what would be the solution to that? I think it's a fascinating conversation. How do you get people to not believe the stuff that they believe in and actually point them to a direction that the facts may, may be in the opposite direction? Uh, the gentleman there in the cream shirt. Hi, uh, I'm Vivek. Uh, so my question is to the fact checkers. I mean, how do you check for facts? And has there been any occasion wherein you know you have fact checked something and have said this is false news, and that's turned out to be actually right and not false? So, wow. <laughs> Go and you, you want to take that? Do you just do you guys just Google and and see <laughs> what's right, what's not? No, I so. I mean, the, I, I don't know if our process is similar to the others, but we usually have a three-stage process. So the first part is research, uh, where there are numbers involved, and the people who do it in our organization are people with public policy background, so they know how to look at data sets and so on. The second part is the tools, where you're using uh, commonly available tools, some not so commonly available tools, you're doing reverse image searches, because you're dealing with morphed images, doctored photographs, sliced and diced videos, and all of that. The third part is journalism, where you call up people if there are people involved and you can identify someone and say, did you say this? Is this the context in which you said it? Or do you want to, uh, or do you want to supplement something that you've allegedly said because it looks like it, it's, there's something wrong here? So it's really a three-part process. And I can tell you that some stories may be ours and some take weeks to do. And it's because of the time we're spending and the, the number of stories that we're doing, which is very few, we've not gone wrong. But it's quite likely that we could go wrong. And if you do go wrong, there is a very strong corrections policy for all those who are verified members of the International Fact-Checking Network that we have to state up front where the mistake happened and the, that mis the acknowledgement of the mistake and the correction has to be transparent to the reader. It's fascinating because this used to happen in mainstream journalism. I mean, it still does in, in newspapers and in, to some extent in television. But anyway, uh, we've got that, yeah, the, the lady there actually. been waiting for a while. Thank you. My name is Arshi Agarwal. My question actually is to Mr. Ethiraj, and it goes back to the title of this uh, panel. That is, who is winning the false news battle? The first time I read this uh, question, this title, I actually thought that we are going to talk about who is actually spreading the false news false news. Because, okay, I can understand in some of the cases, like in case of Coca-Cola, or in case of political parties, or in cases of particular brands, there can be people with vested interests. But in cases of like, for example, the Karnataka case of lynching, child kidnappers, child lifters, or in cases of Ayurvedic medicines curing uh, Nipah virus, somebody earlier mentioned this here only, and then fake quotes of APJ Abdul Kalam, who is benefiting from all of that fake news? Like, what is I the actually purpose of that? I think that's a fascinating question. I mean, is somebody materially benefiting from the transmission of fake news? Yeah, so good point. I think uh, uh, actually yes and no, because there are two kinds of false news or disinformation. There is the deliberate and there is the not deliberate or inadvertent. So the inadvertent is very simple. 
I am an account holder in Punjab National Bank and I know that you as a friend of mine are also an account holder. I've been reading the news. I sent you a WhatsApp message saying that, you know what, I've been looking at the news around the scam that's developing in Punjab National Bank. I think there's a $1 billion hole in the balance sheet. And my suggestion to you as a friend is that you should go and close your account because I'm thinking of closing mine. So what do you do? You look at it, you're obviously scared, particularly if you're over 50 and you've got your life savings in that bank. And all of this has happened last year, right? And, and you're very likely to say, okay, maybe I should do that. But the first thing you will do, whether you actually go to the bank or not, is you will forward that message to 20 people, right? So, and, 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 and in a week's time, that message which I sent to you as a friend and you forwarded it in good faith would have reached a million people. And that's how it spreads. And a lot of stuff actually spreads like that. And so unfortunately, it, it has equally devastating outcomes. So, so, sorry, I'm interrupting. Is there no way the, the platform can block that? Which, are you talking about Facebook Let's or WhatsApp? Let's say Facebook, WhatsApp, no, whatever I think the WhatsApp's platform may be. position is very clear and maybe Aaron wants to weigh in as well. I think WhatsApp's position is that this is end-to-end -end encryption and therefore they do not want to get into it. They don't even have that piece of uh, data, I mean, uh, since it travels in the form of data. Uh, once it leaves your phone, it enters someone else's phone and that's the end of it. So the larger question is now, can a WhatsApp or should a WhatsApp pry into messaging start pulling it out and you can know that something is going viral by the data again, right? You know, the analytics will tell you and, and uh, you know, 90% of messages in WhatsApp are between two people. But the 10% is where all the problem is. That's where all the sort of the mass blasting and everything happens. So, uh, that's a much larger question. Okay. Aaron, you, you, you want to add to that? I'll just simply say that, you know, we have to, this is, this is, and I'm, I don't defend, it's not my job to defend Facebook, but remember, everyone was really mad at Facebook because they stole your information through Cambridge Analytica. And so a solution here would be like, well, Facebook, you know this is false, so this is being spread on WhatsApp, a platform you own, so why don't you do something about it? And so I understand, like, from their perspective, that it, that's a very, that's a person to person, they don't actually see the, the information. I mean, I think it's a, it's a tricky one, but uh, again, goes back to I think that, you know, we have to be really careful about any action we take, whether it's a government getting involved, whether it's businesses, because there could be a lot of consequences to anything we do. All right, fair enough. Sorry, um, yeah, I think it's, it's often cases people wanting to be helpful and they think, uh, I'd rather share this in case it may be true. Um, I don't think it, it's, it's possibly true, but I'll, I'll just share it, you know, um, um, to, to be sure. So um, we were kind of new to this medium, to uh, WhatsApp and to social media. So it will take some time, just like with the introduction of radio and the TV, for people to learn how to navigate it and for all the aunts and uncles on the WhatsApp groups to, to make the distinction that uh, maybe it's sometimes more harmful to share a message than um, not to. All right, fair enough. So I'm going to do one question this side, one question that side. The gentleman there in the, in the gray. My name is Sebastian. I work for the French uh, radio. Uh, my question is, it's, I mean, it seems that, and you said that more than 90% of the fake news actually are spread digitally and through non-mainstream media. So it seems that we have to go back to the source and uh, identify the sources online through maybe browsers that uh, could identify what source is reliable and what not. I know that in France, the, uh, now the Le Monde, the newspaper, have started this uh, small way of identifying which uh, website is, is reliable or not. So what kind of tools are we developing to identify the sources? Because before when we had print medias, people knew this, this media is reliable and this one is not. 
right now the line are blurred. We don't know which media is spreading what. So the question is there, what can we do to just go back to the source and help people actually seeing, you know, this is red, this is orange, this is green, All right. reliable or not. Thank you. Um, I guess there's this really interesting debate happening about what the role of mainstream media is in all of this and to what extent do independent fact checkers and also how do we get to a point where the audience are better educated in all of this. And I think ultimately the solution is going to be a mixture of all of these things. Um, I think we as ma mainstream news organizations definitely have to do a lot more to educate our audiences about what they're seeing and what they're hearing. So for example, I mean, about 18 months ago, the BBC launched this strand called Reality Check, which was a sort of regular multi-platform um, piece of uh, storytelling where we try and debunk content and stories that the audience see, um, and whether that's from mainstream media or more offbeat sort of sources. But I think also there's this digital literacy aspect of it. So um, the BBC in the UK earlier this year launched a big schools project. So we created a sort of a workshop where a journalist across a thousand different schools in the UK went to deliver a sort of a course uh, teaching kids about how to understand news and sources and content. And so we're adapting that at the moment for Indian schools as well, which we're hopefully, you know, we'll start doing in the next sort of few weeks or so. But I think we don't do enough in terms of the digital literacy aspect of it. I mean, Govin and, you know, organizations like these do a fantastic amount. And I think sometimes we, we need to take more ownership of that as well and work more with them. I think on the source, uh, at this point, if you ask us, except for some cases where the, the, the perpetrator is brazen, I mean, we've had cases of websites which openly broadcast fake news uh, in this country. And uh, those websites are in turn endorsed by politicians, well-known politicians, and even defended publicly. So it's all out there. But if you take those away, it's extremely difficult to find the source of news. I mean, I have not seen a single case where something really defamatory, communally divisive, or even anti-product, because we've done a lot of uh, product service uh, uh, sort of fact-checking or fake news busting, where we've actually managed to locate the source. Possibly law enforcement can if they get into it. And my sense is that in some of the cases which have led to mob lynchings, the police have got much closer to the source of those messages or WhatsApp messages and hopefully we'll do something but, but, about but it. But isn't it possible for the platform to know the source? The platform might know the source, but the platform may not share it with people like us. So law enforcement has a much better chance of getting hold of that. Okay. Can I, I'm going to just add one thing really quick. There's a, a team in the United States called NewsGuard um, that is trying to, they're developing a Chrome extension uh, that will essentially do red, yellow, green on every URL uh, or every domain. Uh, and and the question there is, who's NewsGuard and why should you trust them? So you kind of, it's, it's a signal for you, but I don't know how much you could trust it versus something else. Just, just one other thing to mention, um, I was at a conference um, last week in Singapore where Facebook and Google were trying to talk a bit more about some of this stuff and Govin was there as well. And I think one thing that they're trying to do is sort of a technical solution is how they can give more sort of digital markers for trusted sources and trusted websites. Um, and so, again, it's about the signal thing, that if there's a story that's been published by a respected or trusted source, then it will appear higher up on news feeds. And sources where they're more dubious, you know, a bit like the NewsGuard model, then they will appear further down uh, search results and news feeds. And I think longer term, that could be a really useful technical right. solution. Fair enough. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Himanshu. Uh, I have sh uh, two short questions. My first question is, as one of you rightly pointed out that you know, this problem of fake news is a relatively younger concept. 
I mean, it's been four to five years, but uh, seeing in the present scenario, it's still, you know, a good amount of time. So, I mean, I just want to understand there was no proactive approach taken. I mean, uh, when we saw this phenomena settling in, I mean, uh, were there some measures taken that, or we were just, you know, uh, simply everyone was blindfolded or something All like right. that, one. All and right. the second No, keep it to one question, please. Just, Thank just, you. Yeah, keep it to one question. Thank you. No, I don't think it's five years. I think the awareness of fake news as a phenomenon is really post-2016 November US elections. And uh, it's, it's really, only, I would think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the concept of fake news, I mean, Aaron can correct me, but the concept, I mean, I started noticing it only late 2016, early 2017, which is uh, in the scheme of things is a, is a very short time. I think the awareness, we've talked about it a little earlier. I actually am, I mean, at one level, I've, yes, the battle is still being won by the dark side, but I think the the fight back, whether it's people like us, whether it's governments, law enforcement, overall education and awareness has dramatically increased, right? I mean, considering that all of this is new, Facebook is 14 years old, WhatsApp is less than 10 years old, uh, YouTube is a few, I mean, 11 or 12 years old, iPhone is 11 years old. So we've enjoyed the benefits of social media networking, connecting and all the good things. We're seeing the evil side of it. It takes time for, for systems and societies to fight back. I think the fight back has begun. That, that's what I'm positive about. Okay. But it's about how, how, but, How but stronger there was, we can. There were these fake stories about Obama's birth certificate and he was sure, whether he was sure, Kenyan sure. and I think that, Muslim. So, yeah, so uh, from my perspective, so uh, as like a very kind of serious, studious political fact checker, we saw all that crap um, and we're like, ah, no by one way, believes it. By the way, by the current president. But, but uh, so like the, the idea, the most famous fake news story is the Pope endorsed Donald Trump, right? <laughs> and so we all saw that story, but how, how many... I don't, I don't think anyone in this room believed it. And so we didn't, and so we were like, what's the point of fact-checking it? I think what happened was we clearly got a sense that, oh, this, this works. It's not just garbage, right? You know, And it has real-world impacts. You know? And so I think that's, when you put those together, yes, it existed. We were aware of it. But once you saw, oh, gosh, this, is, this actually is something. We need to do something. I think that took a while for everyone to kind of process. Okay, a uh, question from this side. Is there anybody on this side? Or I'm going, going back to this side. Okay, the lady there in the white. Uh. Hi, my name is Padma Priya. I'm an independent journalist. Um, my question is more linked to the language challenge that we in India face. Um, I get a lot of WhatsApp messages in my native tongue of Telugu, which are incredibly false. And uh, I do it as a moral duty to co constantly tell people. And these are usually my family members and family groups sending very ridiculous messages. Um, and I do tell them that, listen, like, this is, this is trash and don't believe this. Um, but what are the kind of initiatives that are out there to tackle the fake news that's spreading really quickly in the regional languages? Like it was also in the case of the Karnataka episode. Like that message also got translated into Telugu and got, you know, and in Kannada. So, yeah, I just want to understand that component of yeah, it. Yeah, I think it's a great question. You, you want to answer that because you, you're in charge of languages sure. for the BBC. So, yeah, um, the BBC, we've got now six languages in India, including Telugu. Um, and I think one of the things we started looking back at sort of earlier this year was beyond just doing our own job of being news organization, uh, uh, new, uh, producing news services in these languages, what more in addition should we be doing to try and contribute to greater education and awareness in this space. So I think over the next few months, we're going to do several things. So one is um, in November, we're hosting um, a big uh, sort of series of conferences and events on 12th of November in Delhi, but also in Hyderabad and other regions that we have um, uh, news services, where we're trying to bring together stakeholders and sort of convening 
them to try and come up with ideas and solutions for how we can work more together. So that's not just news organisations or policy makers, but fact checkers, police you know, uh, units who are working on this, researchers, um, and hoping that we can help contribute to that. I think one thing I'm really aware of is that a lot of the great fact-checking work that happens is often limited because you can only do it in English or maybe in Hindi and there's not a lot of language depth in India and so I'm thinking much harder about how we can help you know fact-checkers like Boom Live that you know maybe we have journalists on the ground who can help fact-check stuff for them because they don't have the language skills and maybe we can collaborate in, in, in more ways that way as well. You know, so we, we worked with Facebook for ahead of the Karnataka elections and that was a project. We were sourcing in Kannada. I mean, we were not outputting in Kannada, but we were sourcing in Kannada. So, and we were outputting in English. Now, and we were also distributing that to some of our friends in uh, Kannada media in, in Karnataka. Uh, we've further partnered with, now with Facebook. We're going to work more exhaustively in Hindi and Bengali for both sourcing and outputting. So then, then we'll have three languages, English, Hindi and Bengali. But there are more languages and we hope to get there soon. Sure. W one final question, then I'll get a quick uh, round of closing comments. I think the, the, the lady in the, in the far end. I'm Rasika, and like you guys talked about how sometimes facts are also, uh, which are slightly inaccurate, can be termed as fake news for their own political agendas. So with the elections coming up, it can be a very handy tool for political parties. So can we control fake news through a legal aspect? By this I mean the statutory law. Would it be prudent to do that? And what would be the role of a journalist? All right, thank you. I, I think that's a great question. Is the law good enough to deal with the problem? Uh, what, what have you faced uh, as, a, as a person in charge of a brand? Is the law good enough? Uh, I mean, are there enough checks and balances in the no, law? No, they're not. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, I mean, as I said that fake news ultimately is serving someone's purpose. And that beneficiary of that fake news can be sitting anywhere. And I don't want to comment on that. So at the end of the day, it is everyone else's interest, right? So you can't say that there will be law. I mean, there are enough laws. Uh, there are cybercrime laws. There are other laws. There are all these new. There are fake news about the fact that in WhatsApp, the admin will be responsible or not responsible. We don't know the veracity of that, that news itself. So I don't think that we have enough law to really go and, and for redressal. Because it's, it's more of the, more of the uh, uh, you know, I mean, creating that awareness and knowledge, which probably is the only way forward to my mind. All right, well, one final question uh, in, in the lady in the last row, yeah. Uh, my question is related to the distinction between misinformation and disinformation, especially in cases in India where it's not very clear what the source is or what the incentive might be. So, for example, the spate of lynchings that we referred to. One of the things when I was watching that coverage and thinking about stories is in in is this sort of a Chinese whispers or telephone type of game where somehow somebody has said maybe there's a kidnapper and then it takes off from there? Or is this something that there's some sort of malicious intent behind it? Um, so I'm wondering if that difference matters to fact checkers and journalists covering these types of things, if there are other instances where that distinction can be confusing um, and, and how that plays out in the landscape specific to India. All right, thank you. You, you want to take that? Yeah, I think, uh, so the laws I think we've covered already and I, 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 there's at least been one case where someone was arrested for spreading misinformation or disinformation with a view to create some sort of communal tension. I think here, we it's unfortunate, but I think we have to look at what happened. The Whether it was deliberate or otherwise, the fact is that it led to people getting together and beating someone to death, right? So if you look at that, then it was clearly, it was clearly meant to incite violence and it led to actually the murder of one person and in all 30 people across the country or more than 30 people across the country. So 
I don't know if the definition of whether it's misinformation or disinformation matters, but it's evident that when you look back at the trail, the intent was to stir some violence. Whether okay. that violence would have led to murders or not, it's not clear. And to that extent, I think that person is definitely guilty. No, uh, if I were to just extend what, what, what the question was, in the Dhule case or in the Assam case, the, the whole idea of insider versus outsider, Hindu versus Muslim does not apply. So then, are, are there people who are just spreading this just for the sake of violence? It looks like that. I mean, this is, requires much deeper analysis, but clearly there is, you know, even the messages say, messages say, catch them and don't let them go. Right? So now at what point is it catch them but hand them over to the police or your local police or is it what, at what time does it, what point does it become catch them but beat them up till they die? Wow. Uh, I, I guess we'll leave it at that. Uh, I don't know about these guys. I have another panel to rush to so I'm going to wrap it up. But thank you very much. I think this has been a fascinating conversation on fake news. Can we have a round of applause for all our panelists and a fantastic audience with some great questions. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel.